Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in Catholic Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. This channel and episode were created in collaboration with the American Catholic Historical Association, a conference of scholars, archivists, and teachers of Catholic studies. My name is Allison Isidore, and I'm a host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Jay Carney, an associate professor in the Department of Theology at Creighton University. Jay is one of the authors of Contesting Catholics, Benedicto Kiwanuka, and the Birth of Postcolonial Uganda, published by Boydell and Brewer in 2021. Contesting Catholics was also authored by Dr. Jonathan Earle, associate professor of history and chair of the African-American Studies program at Center College, but he could not attend our interview today. Contesting Catholics is the first scholarly treatment of Uganda's first elected ruler, Benedicto Kuanuka. Jay and Jonathan offer new insights into the religious and political history of modern Uganda. This book offers new ways of thinking about the history of democratic thought while pushing the study of Catholicism in Africa outside of the church and beyond the gaze of missionaries, drawing on new and never-before-seen sources from Kiwanuka's personal papers Jay and Jonathan upend many of the assumptions that have framed Uganda's political and religious history for over 60 years and repositions Uganda's politics within the global arena. Jay, welcome to the show. Thank you, Allison. It's a pleasure to be with you. Yeah. I was wondering if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself. Sure. Well, as you mentioned earlier, I, I'm a professor here at Creighton University in Omaha, Nebraska, also known as the home of the College World Series, which recently completed. And I actually teach in a department of theology rather than a department of history. Uh, my PhD is in church history from Catholic University of America. So I would say my scholarship really lies at the intersection of theology and history. And as you can see in this book, among others, I my research really looks at how theological vision and imagination and belief have shaped both political and religious history, uh, particularly in Great Lakes, Africa. So my first book was on Rwanda, investigating the and really interrogating the role of the Catholic Church and the formation of ethnic and political identity and violence in Rwanda. And then this project is is part of several I've worked on in the neighboring country of Uganda. So yeah, so it's a little bit a little bit about me. Yeah. And, you know, before diving into contesting Catholics, can you tell us how you came to the subject? You know, what about Kiwanuka and postcolonial Uganda made you want to write about that? Sure. So I first visited Uganda in 2004 when I was a master's of divinity student at Duke University and I actually was doing ministry work in rural Uganda. So 
my interest in Uganda in some ways goes back many years, and I've been back and forth to the country for some time. Uh, and to, on a scholarly level, as given my work in Rwanda, I've been interested in the intersection of religion and politics in this region for uh, really since my graduate studies. Uh, but I particularly became interested in Benedicto Kiwanuka when I was working on another book project uh, that was recently published called For God in My Country, Catholic Leadership in Modern Uganda. And that was a book that really was profiling different Catholic leaders and their social impact in Uganda. And I had originally set off to write that book primarily on a particular archbishop named Emmanuel Nsubaga, who was very influential in the 1970s and 80s. But in the process of researching him, I came across Prime Minister Kiwanuka, and I honestly did not know much about him. And I still remember very distinctly meeting with a bishop who said, well, you're interested in Catholic leadership in Uganda. You you got to know about our most famous politician. And he, he handed me a dossier that was on a, you know, that had actually been part of Kiwanuka's early efforts for canonization. So the Ugandan components of the Ugandan church had put him forward as a political martyr, as a martyr for the church. So I thought to myself, well, here you have a guy who was a prime minister and he's, they're trying to canonize him as a saint. And I thought, well, this is quite interesting. So that project ultimately expanded even beyond both those figures to include about seven other Catholic leaders in Uganda but that was my first interest. And then when I was working on that book project, um, John Earl, who's my co-author for this book, had been working on this for some time, going back to his doctoral studies. And he knew my work on Rwanda and was kind of, I think, looking for collaboration to bring in particularly someone who knew Catholic theology and history well. So he reached out to me and I said, well, I'm already kind of working on Kimonuka. <laughs> so, and uh, this could be great. And in a way, this, this project would go much deeper than the chapter in my other book. Uh, and so it really ended up being a very mutually beneficial uh, project. And maybe later in the interview, I could talk about that. But I would really, our, the work between John and I, I just think it was a real model for the, the fruits of a collaborative research partnership. Yeah. And, you know, kind of sticking with your work with John, you know, I was wondering if you can talk a bit about your research method for this project. You use a mix of private papers from Kiwanuka, archives, newspapers, and interviews. You know, can you tell us about that process and what were some challenges you ran into? Sure. So to give credit where credit's due, John Earl really initiated the research on, on this project. And as part of his doctoral dissertation, uh, which was later uh, published by Cambridge University Press. It's a book called Colonial Buganda and the End of Empire. Uh, he actually had a chapter on Kiwanuka and his kind of political theology. And in the process of researching that, this was back 2008, 2009, John encountered Benedicto Kiwanuka's son, who actually had served as an ambassador from the country and was kind of an unofficially representative of the family's legacy. And his son, Ambassador Kiwanuka, you know, revealed that they had this extensive collection of private papers. It, we're talking, you know, six thousand documents <laughs> that that most people most people knew Kiwanuka kept very detailed records, but most thought that when he was, uh, which we'll get maybe get into later, but when he was assassinated that those had been lost, and then it turned out it hadn't. The family had protected them, and thankfully. 
Ambassador Kimanuka was willing to share these papers with with John. And so, so it sort of started out of this personal collection of papers, but we were also able to consult archives in the UK, also in, in Uganda. Uh, we were able to work with, and I have to give, again, thanks to Yale University, who shared extensive sort of digital files of Uganda Argus, which is was the predominant English language newspaper in Uganda in the late 1950s and early 1960s was very, very helpful for this project. We did interviews, both John and then later myself, with folks over the course of around 10 years, including aging activists from Kimanuka's party and others, associates, family, friends. So it's kind of kind of put together, and then also drawing on both local Ugandan scholars who've done excellent work on Kimanuka and related um, on his party, and then also obviously other scholars who've been working in, you know, in this field. So I'd say, you know, all of those help to inform the project. Yeah. And, you know, I'm an Americanist. And so I don't necessarily get to read outside of my research area. And so it was really interesting to get a chance to read your book and take a step outside of the U.S. And especially to learn about Benedicto Kibunuka. I, I didn't know who he was before reading the book. And so for our listeners who don't know who he is either, you know, can you talk a bit about him? You know, what role did Catholicism play in his personal and political identity? Sure. Well, you had mentioned earlier that you live in New Jersey. So I'll just note for New York Giants fans out there, his uh, a descendant of Kiwanuka, Matthias Kiwanuka is a two time Super Bowl winner with the New York Giants. I don't Giants fans probably don't need to be told that. But he he's he's a relative of Benedito Kiwanuka. Like, of course, had emigrated to the U.S., played football, Boston College, and then later for the Giants. But in Uganda, Benedito Kiwanuka is much better known. And he was born in 1922. So we're actually celebrating his hundredth in a birth anniversary. So in some ways, this is good timing for this podcast. He came from a relatively poor family in Buganda, which is the southern kingdom of what today is Uganda, and the kingdom that gave, in a sense, the British kind of used, a, in some ways, a Swahili mispronunciation of the name to give Uganda its, its formal colonial name. Uh, Kiwanuka was a Catholic. He was from a, a he himself was relatively devout in his Catholicism, and the Catholic schools were also really integral to his formation as a young man and the education he received. He served in World War II in the British colonial army in Palestine and in Egypt, uh, which was kind of an important part of internationalizing his formation. He went on to go to law school. He did studies first in Lesotho in Southern Africa, and then later uh, went to the University of London. In the 1950s, during a real time of ferment for anti-colonial activism in London, and which Kiwanuka was very involved in that. He went back to Uganda in the mid-1950s, around 1956, and actually was one of the first five Ugandan attorneys of law in the capital city of Kampala. So really in the, this initial generation. And within about two years of coming back, he was already pretty actively involved in politics. He joined a party that had been formed in 1954 called the Democratic Party, not to be confused with our own. But, but as I'll talk about later, it had a particular emphasis on the importance of democracy with a small d. Uh, and he was elected the leader of that party in 1958-59. Uh, so he sort of went pretty rapidly through the ranks 
not uncommon in um, independence era Africa. You know, we're talking about a lot of men who are under the age of 40, who the colonial power under pressure receded. And then this sort of elite class is now in place to lead the country. And in many ways, it was a generational reversal where the, the generation above was partly because of a lack of colonial education and other things was sort of marginalized. And then this young generation comes out. And so uh, Kiwanuka, as I said, was a leader of the Democratic Party. But even in late colonial uh, Uganda, there were multiple political parties, including the Uganda People's Congress. And those were the two major rivals during this period between 1959 and then independence in 1962. Kiwanuka's party was elected to a majority in parliament in 1961. And so, and he, this was in the final days of colonial rule, but the British were handing over authority. And for a year, he served as the chief minister of the country, of the entire country of Uganda. Uh, and then in 1962, right on the eve of in, formal independence, his party lost elections to the Uganda People's Congress, very bitterly contested elections. To this day, uh, Kiwanuka is the only Ugandan leader to peacefully concede power to a democratically elected successor, which is one of the legacies that he, for many, is well remembered for. He went on to serve in opposition politics for much of the next decade, which was an increasingly difficult period in Uganda with the UPC and the president Milton Obote becoming increasingly authoritarian. Uh, but there was still an opposition and Kiwanuka was very strong in that. He was, he was imprisoned uh, in 1969 on alleged charges of conspiracy and a potential assassination of Obote. Uh, a lot of people would contest whether that was legit. And many think it was sort of politically trumped up charges. But he spent two years, much of which in isolation, before being released from prison by none other than uh, General President Idi Amin, shortly after Amin came to power in a coup d'etat in 1971. Kiwanuka was initially very grateful to Amin for releasing him. Sometimes when you, you say the name Idi Amin in America, people just assume like he was always this sort of tyrant, you know, monster dictator. But he, he had quite a bit of support when he came to power. He was also very strategic politically. And knowing Kiwanuka's popularity, Amin asked him to serve as the, uh, the chief justice of Uganda's high court, what we would call the Supreme Court. He was also a very skilled lawyer. Uh, so Kiwanuka served in that role uh, for over a year, but Amin was deeply authoritarian and increasingly dictatorial. Uh, he tried to run some cases through the court uh, in order to get basically get the court to sign off on multiple kind of land and business deals, and Kiwanuka would not. And so he, Amin's Amin himself, as well as his military, arranged for the kidnapping of Ben Kiwanuka. He was actually kidnapped directly from his Supreme Court chambers in his robes, <laughs> uh, was taken in the boot of a car, and was never seen again. He was likely assassinated. Some stories account that Amin personally killed him, but regardless, he was uh, likely killed within a week. Uh, his body has never actually been found, but in part because of the story, he's really seen not just as, you might say, a martyr within the Catholic tradition, but he's really seen as a kind of political martyr uh, for many. And, and even though he was not formally in leadership very long, I think the manner of his leadership, the principled nature of it, and the manner of his death 
has allowed his legacy to linger for many Ugandans, even 50 years after his death. Cause he, yeah, he died actually 50 years ago today in September. So. Yeah. And we can get into his martyrdom and then also his family's attempts at canonization later in our interview. But I wanted to talk about Kiwanuka's, uh, creation or not creation but more of uh coining of the term gospel of democracy and um so i want to talk about this so what is the gospel of democracy (laughs) yeah yeah, i know it sounds like uh some sort of rally doesn't it so Mm -hmm. and in fairness this type of language did often emerge in either political manifestos or public rallies so there is an exhortative nature to it I say that because I think it's more of a, you might say, an exhortative term than some sort of analytical concept that uh, that Kiwanuka and his agents develop. But broadly speaking, I think Kiwanuka, partly shaped by his experience in the UK, his studies of constitutional law, uh, and also I think his shaping by currents of Catholic social thought, was deeply convinced that a genuine national democracy in Uganda could usher this country into a, a a new kind of political flourishing. And so gospel in this case, in its original meaning of good news, uh, the language also reflects the deeply Christian ethos of the country going back to the late 19th century, uh, when under the influence of both British and French missionaries, Uganda became one of the most successful Christian mission countries in Africa. And again, most famously gave the world the Uganda martyrs whose legacy is still celebrated today. So the language I think is an example of what scholars like Ernst Kantorowicz or even more recently, William Kavanaugh have described as kind of migration of the holy from the religious sphere to the political sphere. Uh, and and so in that sense, I think is, is formally political. And yet I think in Kiwanuka's case, it was striking to me how it went beyond even just even what we might see in America, sort of formal references to God and bless America, you know, to more detailed things such as the, you know, the manifesto of DP having, you know, kind of Eucharistic imagery you know, on it, on the cover or directly kind of citing the, the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew five and, but transposing this to, you know, blessed are the servants of self-government for there shall be, you know, they shall inherit God's kingdom within this world. And, and, and to be clear, this is not wholly unique to Kiwanuka. I mean, if you study African history, a figure like, you know, famously Ghana's Kwame Nkrumah would talk about, you know, blessed are those who work for self-government you know, and for the liberation of Africa from Europe. And so, so I don't want to overstate the, the uniqueness, but it was, it, it was quite important. And I think, uh, reflected the way in which for Kiwanuka and many of these activists, it was not so much that they were trying to establish what Americans might think of as a theocracy and kind of, you know, an, Ara- an Iranian state with, you know, religious leaders in charge, which is often, I think, a stupid stereotype that's put out. But it does reflect the deep kind of rhetorical and, and I think even the kind of theological faith that often would fuse with people's broad political visions in, in a kind of strategic, but also I think in an organic way. I don't, it's not just simply to get votes, but I think it, it's sort of deeply felt for, you know, for many of these leaders. So going into the, the relationships of, 
politics and religion now. You know, you're discussing the political makeup of Uganda by looking at Catholic relationship with the parties um, in Uganda. You know, you talked a little bit about the Democratic Party and using, you know, the Eucharist on the front of their covers, right? And so it's that's hitting on my next question you know what kind of influence did you know catholicism have on these political parties you know it, they didn't just have you know a democratic party they also had republicanism as well um and how did this religious politics work in different regions of uganda you know one thing i really like about your book is that it's not solely focused on one city or one region you know you a broader look and i think that paints a a much broader picture uh of uganda's political history sure no i think you in your final comments you sort of named i think among even uganda scholars what would be seen as one of the more original contributions which is that people know broadly about kiwanuka and the democratic party in uganda but the regional focus was i think a new thing and particularly the depth of that but to go back to your first question so dp which i should note it was really known more by its initials so Uganda People's Congress would be UPC, the Democratic Party would be DP. So DP started in Buganda, and in to sort of make a long story short, shorter maybe than it should be. And in Buganda, particularly once the British fully come into power by the year 1900, Anglicans were generally favored uh, in the country. But Catholics actually didn't have a majority, but they had a plurality. So there were more Catholics on the ground than Anglicans. They weren't necessarily, there was a pretty bitter war between Anglican and Catholic factions in the 1890s. But after that, it was it was an outright conflict like you saw in Northern Ireland or something like that. But, uh, but there was favoritism. And so the DP started in the 50s in part to empower Catholics almost in a kind of civil and political rights. Uh, for example, it was much less common for Catholics to serve in uh, you know, at the level of chiefs and subchiefs, they had less control of land. There was particular marginalization in the royal, in elements of the royal court. So, uh, so it has its roots there, and I think it retained. I think part of going back to your previous question, part of the the interest in democracy was also this idea of empowering the people, right, and kind of going to the grassroots and bringing people up. But one thing Kiwanuka did, even more than his predecessor leaders, was to expand the party beyond Buganda. So that it developed active um, headquarters in all of Uganda's major regions and kingdoms uh, in the late 1950s. And and of course, the politics is different in different parts of the country. And so uh, so one thing we try to show is that DP, again, for example, really emphasized democracy and small r republicanism in Buganda almost in some ways an anti-royalist party, but in a place such as uh, Kohli, which is in southwest, more southwestern Uganda, they they were allies more with the royal family and the the royal clan, in part because they were Catholics and they had sort of strategic interests. And so there was, like all political parties, I mean, you have uneasy alliances, they they work here and there. Uh, One of the strongest DP... uh, you could say factions developed in the northern part of the country among a people known as the Acholi, 
which would be very, very different cultural and linguistic background than Buganda. Uh, but many of the major leaders of DP after Kiwanuka came out of this area. And in fact, they became dominant. Uh, and another thing we try to show in the book is that the stereotype has often been, you know, the DP to use the Luganda was literally Dini Yapapa, you know, the religion of the Pope. And this would be the, the kind of the, almost the accusation that would be hurled at it. Uh, and likewise, DP activists would call UPC the United Protestants of Canterbury, <laughs> you know, the, emphasizing the Anglican roots. But in reality, these parties melded across religious lines. And so, for example, a very devout and prominent Catholic named uh, Cuthbert Obungor, who was a very, a very important leader in Teso, which is a, a region of eastern Uganda, was a, a major activist and leader in UPC. Uh, very active in the Catholic Church, but also helped to, in a way, marginalize the DP as a party there. And this is by no means a unique case. Even in Buganda, there were very important, what we would call royalist Catholics, who were very close to the king, who was known as the Kabaka, and, and strongly opposed to DP, to the point of even persecuting, you know, to their fellow Catholics. And so, you know, we without denying that DP had these Catholic links, we also try to show that it's never as simple as this party represents this church and then this party is here. And I think that's that's an important story in Uganda because the, la- the, the language of sectarianism has lingered. And it's oft, I mean, none of us, at least I think I speak for John and I, we're not pro-sectarianism, but, but sectarianism isn't always real. It, it, it can be used, whether it's in Uganda or in our own country, it can be used as a political tag against one's opponents. And so you're putting religion in politics and and people can assume they are, but, but sometimes that's not the case. That's just an opponent accusing you of something. And so I think what we try to show is, listen, you know, this story is a little more complicated than some of the activists have have claimed on both sides. Right. And speaking of activists, you know, you highlight how Catholic activism became intertwined with varying religious and democratic revolutions, right? So what did this Catholic activism look like and what were the results of this political revolution or, you know, were they successful? (laughs) Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, one of the lines that keeps coming back in our book is the gospel of democracy is always to use theological language eschatological. So it's, it's always coming from the future, you know, and the sad thing is it's just, it never quite comes right. It's all, I mean, even in our own country, there's like, you know, you always feel like you're losing. (laughs) There's always, you know, democracies under siege, but in, in Uganda, it's a, it's a different, it really has in many ways, it really has been, a failure. I mean, when I said at the beginning that Kiwanuka, who served formally in power for a year as the last leader to hand over power to a democratically selected successor, that's a sign that the gospel of democracy did not exactly just take off. But with that being said, I mean, there are cases such as in Bunyoro in Western Uganda, where uh, partly under the influence of DP, there was a major movement to try to regain what were known as the Lost Counties, which was land of the Bunyoro that had been taken by Buganda in a previous conflict in the 19th century. Uh, and there were multiple factors for this, but ultimately, you know, Bunyoro was able to regain you know, this land. And I think DP was at least a part of that process. In places, like I mentioned earlier, in the Choli land in the north, the Catholic Church from bishops like 
John Baptist Odama to lay activists to even political leaders has remained incredibly important in terms of both during the what was known as the LRA war and some of the various abuses happening, but even in defending people today against the central government and, and often what's happening there in terms of land grabbing. And so I think you see a, a kind of mobilized Catholicism that I think remains the case in some parts of the country. Uh, and then maybe even in a kind of to quote someone like like the theologian Karl Rahner, a kind of an anonymous political Catholicism that somebody like the most recent opposition politician, Bobby Wine, who developed some international notoriety due to his very strong campaign against President Museveni. He was tortured, put in prison. He lost the elections in pretty controversial circumstances. But it, but Bobby Wine himself, or um, Robert Chalag, uh, Chalagunyu is his formal name, but he, you know, he himself was uh, is a Catholic. You know, his language often echoes that of Kiwanuka and others in terms of this hope for democracy. This his movement was known as the People Power Movement. Uh, and so, again, we don't want to overclaim. I mean, some of this type of language and movements transcends DP, but you also do see a, a, you can draw a thread, I think, you know, through these years. And Kiwanuka himself spent much of his time not in power, but in, in opposition and in resistance. And I think there may be something to be said for that, that we, we sometimes only focus on the people who lead, but, but there can be real important legacies left by those who, you know, who resist or as Kiwanuka, you know, in one of his editorials, he wrote in the public paper to Abote, you know, said, if you can, you know, if you continue this president Abote, we will resist <laughs> and you will have to kill all of us, you know? And, and this, so I think this, this kind of legacy of resistance and rhetoric, I think lingers both in the Catholic church and also among you know, the political opposition in Uganda, which does remain quite active, even in a, you know, in a system that's, you know, been generally dominated by one party. So, you know, some listeners might be wondering, why, why should I read this book? You know, it, the, the book is focused on Uganda. It's focused on Africa. People who are, you know, Americanists like myself might not think this is a book I should read. Why do you think? Uh, why do you think our readers should should read your book? <laughs> <laughs> sure. I mean, on one level, especially if you're interested in Catholic history, uh, Africa really in the 21st century is demographically and increasingly in terms of energy the center of the global Catholic Church. So, if you want to know about the our our history is always shaped by our future, and this this history will increasingly not be marginal; it'll be much more center. And Uganda within Africa is probably as one of the most dynamic and important historical Catholic churches. But beyond that, particularly for an American audience, I think there's interesting resonances. So, you have in America, for example, a predominantly Protestant country shaped by a, a sort of varying kinds of political Protestantism, going back to the Puritans and the Great Awakenings, and you know various events movements. You have a, in America a Catholic minority that's also been active, but in some ways marginalized. I think in Uganda, that's it's not 
wholly unlike that, where you had a generally kind of politically dominant Protestant church and party. You had Catholics who were very active at the grassroots, but kind of marginalized. In a sort of a symbolic moment in 1961, Ben Kiwanuka, shortly after being elected as chief minister, traveled to Washington, D.C. and met with John Kennedy, who himself, of course, had just become the first Catholic president, which, in, as, as you know, in 1961 was not nothing. So both were representing this kind of breakthrough of Catholic politicians in predominantly Protestant political spectrums where that was really suspected. So I think that those sort of interesting kind of cross sections there. And then I think some of the issues that Kiwanuka stands for, I mean, the importance of local elections, election integrity, a lot of his efforts, like what happened to his party in Buganda was various leaders in the Kabaka's political movement, just suppressing local elections and not allowing intimidating people, stealing votes. I, does this sound familiar? <laughs> you, know, you know, I mean, you have the questions of the rule of law and the way in which politicians try to influence judges and pressure courts as well. And in, in many ways, Kiwanuka is seen as a martyr you know, for that. So and I and, you know, and I think in a healthy way, and I would say this to any American audience, I mean, it doesn't all fit our paradigm. And so like we were discussing before the intersection of religion and politics in Uganda is not just what it is in America or what the Supreme Court decides on prayer. And so I, I would ask readers to go in, you'll see resonances, but also go in to learn and not just to sort of map everything onto my own, what I already know. I, that's a kind of colonial epistemology that's not not terribly helpful. So there, there you'll have surprises, but it may not be as surprising as you think. <laughs> so, Yeah. And now looking at the time, we have time for, I think, two more questions. Um, we, we mentioned earlier, we talked about it earlier, but Kiwanuka was uh, assassinated and has never been found or as, you know, he was kidnapped and never found and we can make assumptions on what happened. But, but his family has attempted to canonize him. And in the conclusion of the book, you have a section titled Memory and Memorialization. So, you know, why did you want to take a focus on this canonization attempt and, you know, look at memory? Mm. Well, like, what you know, what is Faulkner's favorite line? You know, the past isn't dead. It's not even past. And so, I mean, that's in some ways cliche, but there's also real truth in it and that the in Uganda, maybe everywhere in the world. I mean, it's always a battle over history and like, how do we remember our past and how do we even remember these important leaders? And, you know, Kiwanuka is a very public figure and, you know, not unlike someone like Martin Luther King, he died relatively young. His legacy in some ways is claimed by many, you know, some of whom don't agree with each other, some of whom Kiwanuka might not agree with if he was still alive. So I think part of it is to, you know, to offer this book, not just strictly for historians, but also, you know, we're very happy, for example, that Fountain Press is making the book available in Uganda. And and it, it is an act of memory. And I think it's, a, it's to give an example, when I w- was a Fulbright scholar in Uganda in 2018-19, sort of finishing work on this project, among others, I went to the dedication of Kiwanuka's statue, which is outside the high court in Kampala. And it, it's as if he he sort of over, you know, overlooks almost like a religious martyr overlooking the high court. And all of these lawyers and judges, you know, spoke about the importance of the rule of law, the importance of respecting the Constitution, 
the important the sense of Kiwanuka's legacy, you know, continuing being willing to die for one's principles, you know, if one has to. Uh, so I think all all of those things I think are there, and I think that part of sainthood is always about as much about us as about the past. You know, we we make saints out of people who we want to speak to now. Uh, that's been a big theme in Pope Francis's pontificate, you know, moving toward more lay people, more married people, more people from around the global South. And, and likewise in Eastern Africa, they're in a time in which people are often quite frustrated with their politicians and particularly those who rule for decades. You know, there's a hunger for some kind of alternative models of political saints and political models. Uh, now, with that being said, I remember one historian, a Ugandan historian I interviewed, who when I asked him this question, should Kiwanuka be a saint? He, he just laughed. What? No politician should be canonized a saint. <laughs> At least not in a formal We hope they're in the kingdom of God, but not in a formal way. I mean, come on, you're a politician. You, you know, you got to do stuff that's not good. You know, so... You know, so th- by no means is Kiwanuka's sainthood, quote unquote, just uncontested. And to be clear, it is not advanced beyond being considered in my, at least as far as I know, in the local archdiocese, I don't think it's even been promoted to the Vatican at this point. But, but I do think the memory is very active and both in the church uh, and also within the state, you know, within broader society. And so we just, we at least wanted to nod to that and to recognize that this is not just a subject for past history, but in Uganda is very much an active dialogue and even passion and debate that, that needs to be recognized. So, yeah. And as I see, we're running out of time. My last question is what projects are you currently working on? Um, Are there anything, any lingering questions from your work on contesting Catholics that you're planning on pursuing or has your work taken a new direction? Sure. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll make the risk of speaking for John, who's not here, but John's scholarship formally is on the history of Uganda, not just religious history, uh, but all, you know, political history and other areas. And I know John's working on a project looking at Buganda's history in the early 20th century, and particularly how that engaged international figures such as Winston Churchill, who visited Buganda around 1910, and Teddy Roosevelt, who actually also was there. And these visits had a real impact even on Churchill and Roosevelt and their later policy. So as an Americanist, you might want to keep an eye out for, because it's it's part of John, and I think I would share this interest, but you know, part of decolonizing the curriculum is to recognize that this type of influence doesn't just go from Europe to Africa, but it's also these encounters, experiences in Africa, and then shaping uh, elsewhere. And Buganda was a very, very important African center during this colonial period in terms of shaping others. Uh, I'll, I'll leave that. John's doing other things, but I'll just mention that. Uh, for me, I'm actually, I, I, like I mentioned, I've published recently this other book on leadership in Uganda called Forgotten My Country. And it's, I think that book is is sort of pitched a little more to general audience. The book we've talked about is a little more of a historical monograph. I'd say probably designed a little more for grad students and scholars. Uh, forgot in my country, I was kind of thinking of my Creighton undergrads and others who might not have a lot of background, but are interested in the role of religious leaders in the social sphere, and particularly the role of uh, Catholic social teaching and shaping uh, their contributions. So with, but with those projects now finished, I'm actually, I've done some previous work in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, 
And my hope is to return to a project I had just done a little bit of work on some years ago, looking at base Christian communities within the Catholic Church in Congo. And these communities have been studied somewhat extensively in Latin America, particularly in the 70s and 80s in the movement of liberation theology. They've been studied some in East Africa, but in most Anglophone literature, there's just not very much. And they've been very influential at the grassroots of, of the church, which comprises uh, at least half of the Congolese population. So I'm interested in exploring these base communities, and they're predominantly led by women. They engage in everything from legal advocacy to social activism to choir music to prayer to food for refugees and so i don't know if this will end up as a book or more of a research article but i'm hoping to i'm hoping to go to this one diocese in central congo and just speak with some of the women leading these communities and learn a little more about that so that that project might air a little more toward theology ecclesiology and then just formal history although the history for me is always you know it's always at least in the background uh, but that, at least that's what I see as probably my most imminent project. But but religion and politics in Africa is always interesting to me. And I I have no doubt that I'll be circling, you know, circling back uh, to these, at least these kinds of questions in the years to come. Well, that all sounds fascinating. And I can't wait to read more of your work. But uh, Jay, thank you uh, for being on the podcast. Yeah, thank you, Allison. It's been a pleasure to be with you and be with your listeners. So yeah, yeah all the best to you. So Yeah, this has been New Books in Catholic Studies, a podcast on the New Book Network.